Aloha, Kavika Miles here. First off, before we get started, I want to give a big old mahalo nui loa for taking time out of your life to listen to book one of my dystopian saga. Secondly, this free audiobook podcast is only made possible by those of you who buy some of my damn merch. It's easy. Just go over to damnitiloveamerica.com and pick yourself up an American tea, a dystopian tea, or hell, even get a copy of the book and read along with me. Regardless, I really do hope you enjoy Saga of the Nine Origins. Mahalo. Saga of the Nine Origins by Kavika Miles Read by the author Boston, August 5th, 2036. In a minute cloud of dust, Micah's bag slams onto the desk, and carelessly tossing his phone into Kim's old, poorly made mug, Micah walks past the unsanitary counter and straight to the fridge. With the door loose on the hinges, he pours himself a glass of lukewarm milk before making his way back to the couch, downing the beverage, the mustache of his spotty beard, leaving a white, chalky dew. Micah had been out of his depth with her, the only thing he knew for certain was that he loved Kim from the moment he laid eyes on that handmade mug of hers. She absolutely sucked at anything crafty, and the mug reflected exactly that. With a lopsided heart on one side and a concave smiley face a toddler could have drawn, Kim was unabashedly proud of every inch of this creation. Her self-confidence was what made her glow. After that first date, Micah knew his life would be different, and each kiss, each touch, each conversation they'd had was a reminder of that. Now, every time he sets eyes on that mug, he's reminded that different can take many forms. Her absence has left both him and the apartment in shambles. With an overwhelming pile of clothes and bagged garbage in one corner, and the growing mound of dishes in another, what was once a manageable and organized disarray of living space has become one of the many scars Micah carries. Since the dark day of their anniversary, the lipstick she kissed and the note she wrote on the bathroom mirror remains Kim's sacred territory. Still painted with her dried blood, her masquerade mask painfully rests next to his off to the side, but the deepest scar of all is one that Micah takes everywhere he goes. As it dangles from a chain, Kim's engagement ring hangs next to the skeleton key he found from her killers, both touching his chest, just over his heart, as mementos of love and hate. The rhythmic, clattering vibration of Kim's mug brings Micah back from his trance, and out of sheer annoyance, Micah stands to answer his phone. What? It's time to get back to normal, Micah, Carter says on the other end. No, thanks. This is not life advice. It's an order. Irritated, Micah asks. From who? The country that you work for, Micah. The people. Kim's death was tragic, yes, 
but not near as tragic as it is for millions of Americans that have not only been made outlaws and radicals overnight with simple changes to the laws and policy, people are literally dying due to the whims of mob justice and rule, all of which has been funded and defended by the Ordian Reich. Mike has no choice but to get his act together. It's what Carter trained him to do. What do I need to do exactly? Micah asks with a slow exhale. You've been enrolled back at Harvard. Classes start Wednesday. You'll also be an intern helping Governor Reuben G. White with his campaign. Carter takes a momentary pause, allowing Micah to process the information. Nothing is harder than moving on after a loved one's violent removal from your life, a concept that will never be lost on Carter. Is that all? Micah asks. No, I have an assignment I need you for tonight. Roger, I'll be ready. That all-too-familiar tone resonates with Carter. Jim, Carter thinks to himself. Micah, clean some dishes. Talk with your friends. Get out. For what it's worth, I know. Micah ends the call. Gripping the phone, the more forcibly he does, the smoother the tears dripping down his cheeks become, and resisting the urge to shatter the phone against the wall, Micah gently, almost reverently, places it back in Kim's mug. Another one? The sales rep sighs out as a scruffy biker walks in. Honestly, what other demographic would he expect at Harley-Davidson? A biker chick is the only pleasing variance, but even then, they too are frightening. Fresh out of high school and with his only experience being tinkering in the garage, naturally the kid's experience didn't allot many options. That and his dad forced him into the family business of sales. If he had his way, he'd be designing the bikes, not selling them. Unkempt beard and all, in a rather odd and board-like fashion, the biker passes by the high-end and elite bikes most men would whore their girlfriends out to have. The Livewire 2037, the Road King Special V.3. Not one of them captures his attention for more than a couple seconds. That is, until he approaches an old-school design, the Harley 48 2013 edition. Built to rumble through the urban streets, this piece of beautiful machinery spews attitude from the exhaust and can reach face-ripping speeds in 1.9 seconds flat. Set on making the sales stick, the salesman approaches. An interesting piece of hardware, quite rare in fact. What makes it rare? The biker asks, his skepticism of the kid's history bleeding into the conversation. Well, for one, the year. It's over 20 years old. It's completely off the grid, no wireless internet connection. All updates must be done manually. More importantly though, an exact replica. This particular bike has been modified to have a test part installed straight into the engine. Is it fast? He interrupts, the details in the monologue of little interest to him. Yeah, the young rep replies. If the biker would have just calmed down, he was in the process of sharing that piece of information. It's the fastest street bike we have available to the public. And what about the ones not sold to the public? The biker asks, slowly raising his eyebrows. I'm sorry, but they aren't for sale. Money's not an issue, the biker bluntly adds. The salesman is taken aback by this tidbit of irrelevant information. I can't just sell. What if I wanted to look at one? You'd have to talk to the manager. I don't have access to the warehouse out back. I've only been here a month. Obviously, the biker thinks with a smirk, holding out his hand in thanks. Well, thank you, Mr. Childs. Charlie Childs. The kid grasps the man's rugged hand, regretting the decision the second he does. What time do you close, Charlie? Nine, he states, squirming under the grip before managing to finally pry his hand free from the biker's vice. Perfect. And before the salesman delays him any further, Micah turns and exits the dealership. Micah never was one for breaking and entering, but these past months have shed light on the advantages it yields. Kim's death was just the beginning. A nudge. That's all Carter needed. However, despite all the training and the prospect of revenge hanging over Micah's head as motivation, he can't find a way into the warehouse. 
Speak of the devil, Micah thinks, his earpiece giving a subtle vibrate. Yes. What are you doing? Carter casually demands. What you asked. Didn't I specifically say to utilize legal means? Within reason, which is what I did. I tried being reasonable, but it wasn't working, Micah states as he continues to study the vertical obstacle in front of him. His stubbornness and the outside-of-the-box thinking are the traits that made Micah a valuable candidate for the division. It's also what makes working with him extremely frustrating. I gave you a handsome budget. This organization cannot and will not... Yeah, I gotta go. He's heard this lecture before, and as he spots his target over the fence line, Micah taps his ear, ending the call. Dashing towards the adjacent building, Micah kicks off the wall. The leverage propels him over the perimeter where he silently lands on the fractured concrete on the other side. Again, his earpiece vibrates. Micah, Carter immediately begins. There is a time and place, and the Minutemen cannot be founded solely on illicit activity. Isn't the division illegal in the first place? Micah refutes. There are no National Guard or government-sanctioned militia, that is for sure. I used my words intentionally. There are arbitrary aspects to the law that must be taken into consideration. My point exactly, Micah retorts, hanging up a second time. Prowling around the enormous warehouse, Micah eases his way around a corner, conniving away into the actual building. They really do need to tighten security around here, don't they? Carter says, emerging from the shadows of supply crates and slowing Micah to a halt. Just because you can break into a facility doesn't mean you should. You're training. Tools in a box, Micah. They are to be used with prudence. You were recruited and serve as a soldier. It is not your place to make judgment calls for the Minutemen. Scoffing, Micah ignores the admonishing piece of advice. The bikes in there are faster and better than the ones they have on the show floor. And all this puts you above the law? Your ability to obtain at the mere desires of having a better bike? Arbitrary aspects, Micah mumbles. We have all the money and equipment you'll need to accomplish any assignment including the simple one of getting an effective mode of transportation. Micah rolls his eyes before stepping past Carter, where, in a rather impressive manner, he begins scaling a shaky rain gutter. In order for the greater good to succeed, Micah grunts, gripping a portion of the wall with his fingertips, the greater good must live outside the law. Having noted the unstable apparatus Micah is using to scale the building, Carter marks the open window at the top, which Micah is no doubt climbing to. I hate to break it to you, but you are no prince of thieves, Carter says. Loving how well this conversation is going, Micah finds a precarious foothold as he approaches the window, allowing him to shift his weight from his feet to his hands. What about Batman, the Dark Knight legend himself? Clearly not getting through to him, Carter picks up a splintered fragment of 2x4 that will help facilitate one of his crash course specialities. It's the heart and ingenuity that makes a soldier, not the gadgets or toys. Timing the moment where Micah will make his transition from the wobbly rain gutter to the open window, Carter tosses the disheveled piece of wood up and at the solitary rod propping open the skylight. Instead of a comfortable lip to latch onto, Micah's fingers jam into the suddenly closed window, and with his footing shaky to begin with, Carter takes a step back as Micah makes the epic plunge, first slamming into a stack of supply crates before his abrupt stop at Carter's feet. With Micah writhing around, Carter makes sure he eventually locks eyes with him, beaming a simple grin at his student. Hi, Carter says, letting that be his one-word lesson for the humbled and humiliated agent. The following morning, the young salesman smiles brightly as he sees his biker friend walk back in. Rough night? The kid asks, noticing the bruises and cuts on Micah's face. 
Did you have some trouble with your friends in high places? I'll take the Harley 48. Perfect. With another commission in the bag, the kid walks Mike over to his desk to work out the paperwork. Harvard University, August 9th, 2036. Bored, tired, and fed up, Micah's posture says it all. In an exaggerated slouch, he awaits the inevitable torturous and monotone lecture. One down, three to go. And if that wasn't bad enough, out of all the classes Carter enrolled him in, he had to pick governmental theory. Kim had been the political nut, not Micah. He's no useful idiot and understands the world of bureaucrats just fine. It's his lack of patience for the entire system that makes him sick. He barfs in his mouth because of how well he understands political agendas. Even worse is his internship for the Republic's golden child. Michael lets out an audible sigh of disgust at the thought. He's a proud American, but that sentiment is for an America that no longer exists and is in a time he's long since served in. Micah? A woman abruptly shouts, catching his attention. Is that you? He's impressed that anyone can recognize him under his scraggly beard, hooded head, and face twisted in complete and utter disgust for life and the encompassing surroundings. Of course it is. I'd recognize those blue and brown eyes anywhere. Isla? Micah slowly says, her face slowly coming back to remembrance. Lazily, he begins to stand, but the process is immediately hastened as she grabs the collar of his jacket, pulling him into her embrace. How are you? Isla asks, refusing to let him go. I've missed you. I've missed you too, he awkwardly responds, unintentionally projecting his discomfort in the hug. His words are both sincere and reflective. He truly has missed friendly faces, but it's been so long that he can't properly articulate or express any human emotion, and out of all the people to see, it's one of Kim's old roommates. Are you in this class? He asks as she finally releases her clinch on him. Yep, she grins, revealing her perfect teeth and two distinct dimples. I thought you dropped out. I thought so too, he mumbles, scratching his beard. Well, neat. Is it okay if I sit next to you? Sure, he states in yet another awkward question. She smiles, knowing and fully understanding that he's not put off by her sudden appearance. Apparently, he just doesn't know how to be around people yet. It took her some time herself after learning about, about Kim's murder. I like the beard, by the way, she quickly adds as the professor walks in. No, you don't, Micah chuckles. Yeah, it's hideous. Everybody take your seat, please, the professor declares, striding up to the front of the class. Immediately labeling herself as an enigma with her expressionless face, she slaps her briefcase onto the table. Her cup of coffee in one hand, she plugs in and sets up her digital presentation with the other, where a moment later, a classic picture of the White House is displayed. Good morning, everybody. I am Professor Lisa Rogers, and this is Governmental Theory 3410. Have you ever had her before? Micah quietly asks Isla. Nope, but I heard she's really good. She's not very popular among the faculty, being a more constitutionalist and all. But that's why I signed up for this class. Makes me question when everyone else is just in a giant echo chamber. Plus, she's my aunt. Me too, Michael eyes. Wait, what? Professor Rogers is your aunt? Surrogate aunt, I guess you could say. Long story. I'm assuming every one of you in here belong. If not, please leave quietly. No one budges. Let's get started then. Does anyone know when the two-term policy for a president of the United States was officially discontinued? As she expects, nobody raises their hand. It was in 2022. There is some debate as to the exact year, simply because the dialogue and the implementation started nearly a decade prior, but no matter, the general consensus is 2022. Okay then, let's see if you know this piece of historical information. The Electoral College. Who's heard of it? 
She knows that more people know the answer to this, but again, with debate as to its radical nature, the topic has been shadow banned from university studies. That was not a rhetorical question, Professor Rogers coolly states. Isla shoots her hand into the air. Yes. Still no expression, despite Isla's enthusiasm and her alleged relation to the professor. It was how they elected the president in the late 20th century. Correct. And even lasted a few years into this century. Do you know how it worked by chance? Isla, impressed with her own acumen, nudges Micah, proudly nodding her head and puffing out her chest. Miss? Isla, Micah whispers, nudging her back as he points over to the professor. Oh, sorry, Isla begins to blush. I didn't hear the question. Despite the scattered chuckles, Rogers masks the embarrassment for her niece and repeats the question. How did the electoral college work? Stumped, Isla shrugs her shoulders. I actually don't know that one, professor. That's okay. I doubt anyone does nowadays. But I'm willing to be wrong. Is there anyone in here who knows the answer? Last chance. Micah's the only one who is confident enough to raise his hand, but does so reluctantly. So, there is someone. Yes, go ahead, Mr. Rouge. Mr. Rouge. French? The name is, I'm not, he responds, ashamed of the association he has with the country. Continue, Professor Rogers says. Well, it's kind of complicated, he begins. But in a nutshell, it came down to the political philosophy of a representative constitutional republic. Every state had a certain number of votes that went towards electing a president. And how many votes did each state get? Professor Rogers asks. It depended. On what? What determined the number of votes a state got? She asks, again trying to get to the root of it all. The number of electorates or votes depended on the sum total of senators and members of the House of Representatives for each state. And since the House number for each state was dependent on the populace, that's where the number of electoral votes varied from state to state. He really wishes he wasn't the only one that knew this. Looking to Isla for some sort of support, all she gives is a shrug. She's careful, but as soon as Micah turns back to Professor Rogers, Isla smiles, her charm for the man being resurrected. And how did a presidential nominee win the electoral votes of a state? Rogers asks knowing that with just a few more questions, she'll get to her point. Wasn't it by the popular vote of the people in the state? Micah asks, picking his brain for the rarely used information. All the registered voters voted, and whichever candidate got the most votes won all of the state electorates. It was a winner-take-all system, was it not? Yes, that's exactly how it worked. Well, kind of. It was a winner-take-all system in 48 of the 50 states, or was supposed to be anyway. Electorates still had the option to vote against the popular vote of the people in their state, but those were extremely rare instances. The only two states that didn't have the winner-take-all system were Maine and Nebraska. A student raises their hand. Yes, Professor Rogers asks. Why is that? Is it a regional thing? Are they close to each other? Rogers calms her annoyance with a slow inhale. This is no beginner class, and the fact that they don't know this basic information the university system is killing the future. Not to mention, there is the damn internet. Indirectly answering the question, Professor redirects the conversation back to her original aim. Write me a paper about it. I'll expect it Monday, she says, aiming a stern glare at the student. Now, not counting Maine and Nebraska, the entire system we had in place was a winner-take-all. Why? Why have a system like this and not the system we currently have? She asks Micah, but opens the question to the room. Doesn't our system of Congress, being who elects a president, work better? Micah doesn't wait for someone to take the answer. He knows it, and he knows exactly where the professor is going. It's more efficient, yes, but less democratic. Professor Rogers is slightly impressed with this young man. 
Maybe Carter was right about him after all. How so? she asks. We elect our senators and representatives. The idea of a republic is to use democratic means in electing officials who we think will push our ideas forward, enacting laws and policies to do so, is it not? Yes, but it comes down to checks and balances, Mike argues, finally getting to the point Professor Rogers was aiming for. If Congress elects the president, they can skew the results, creating a lot more room for corruption in the system. Unlike the electorates, they are held less accountable by us, the people. Mumbles and silent gasps fill the room. He has a point, the professor says, patiently waiting for the class to calm down. But, just to clarify, we have primary elections and censuring processes. Aren't these checks in against our representatives? They are, Micah begins. But with Congress having full authority to elect the executive branch, it creates a closed-loop system. We might not appoint judges, but when we vote for a president, we vote for one that we think will appoint federal judges that we, the people, would appoint. Or at least, that is taken into account. When Congress cuts people out of the process of electing a president, they are also cutting us out of the process of selecting judges as well. In short, it's a slippery slope, because where does the elimination of democratic processes stop that modernity has pioneered? Exactly, Rogers thinks. Senators are now in office until they die or resign, which wasn't always the case, she teaches the class. The amendment that changed the way we elect a president also changed the way we elect members of Congress. Before we implemented our current election system, there were people trying to create a different constitutional amendment where when we the people voted, the person with the most votes won, period, in what is called a popular election. They wanted the voice of the people to be heard from the people themselves, not Congress and not from electorates. Wasn't that how it worked, though? A student shouts out. Logically, whoever has the most electoral votes has the most citizen votes. You'd think, but no. In 1824, 1876, 1888, and 2000, all those who lost the election won the popular vote. Seems unjust, huh? The Electoral College was essentially a hybrid of a popular vote and a congressional vote. But instead of being a democratic process, it evolved into a more of a game, some would argue. A game to win the states and not the people. But that's politics for you. Imperfect people creating imperfect systems. Back to what Mr. Rouge was saying about checks and balances, though. How does a lack of checks and balances create corruption? As we pointed out, the idea behind checks and balances is inefficient. It slows down progression. Micah knows exactly who these people are. Kim used to talk about them, about their ideas. And for that, she is where she is. Too many people's opinions in the political ring, Roger folds her hands, can cause the system to lock up. And that's a problem because... A student asks. It's not, but liberal officials thought it was because the government could shut down, and it had in numerous times. But that was the beauty of it. Progress for equity's sake is naive and doesn't properly work out the logistics of policy and long-term effect. So... Professor Rogers continues, These same officials tried to simplify the election process in hopes of simplifying the checks and balances, but they went about it in a way most didn't expect. Instead of having a pure popular vote from the people, which I don't advocate for either, the voting changed to Congress, giving more power to the government and less to the people. Sounds like a problem to me, Isla mumbles to herself. Exactly, Professor Rogers says, overhearing Isla's whispered comment. Micah shrugs his shoulders at the professor, his mental political library sparse in this area. That same shrug completely catches Isla off guard. She's absolutely captivated at this point by Micah Rouge. She knows what she wants but can't think of how to go about it. 
Turning to Micah, Isla opens her mouth, but stops as she hears nothing but utter silence from the class. If she speaks, everyone will hear her. Cursing her luck, Isla glances around to see if someone will open their damn mouth and save her opportunity, but no one does. With more than a hint of frustration, Isla blurts out, Why is our current election system such a problem? A few in the class awkwardly chuckle at the abrasive question. Succinctly, Professor Rogers answers, Because slowly, we the people are becoming less of a check to create balance within the political system. I'm sorry, but that's bullshit, a male student shouts out. And just like that, her chance is back. Hey, Micah, Isla tentatively whispers, what are you doing Friday? Is it? Roger belts back at the student. I'm not sure, Micah says, peeling his eyes away from the impending debate. Why? He asks, oblivious to the nervous shake in her voice. Gun control laws are constricting, are they not? And what about a freedom of religion, speech, and the press? Rogers firmly asks. What about it? The male student belts out again, clearly stating the biases in his tone. There have always been restrictions on rights. Isla continues, hoping no one is focused on her. The company I work for is having this fancy dinner at Hotel Elegancy, and I was wondering if you would like to be my plus one or whatever. There. It's out there in the ether. What books are you allowed to read? How many guns can you own? Rogers asks. Students search to find any answer that doesn't make it sound like they have fallen victim to the government's repressive propaganda. Based on all the shootings over the last few decades, I think it's safe to say guns may be best left out of the hands of everyone. They don't save lives, they take them, the boisterous student states, refusing to back down. Micah hesitates to answer Isla, knowing he should have seen this coming. Tentatively, he says, I don't know, Isla. I might have to pass. Yeah, it's, it's, it's good, she says, brushing off the heartbreak as if it's nothing. You really think that? Rogers holds her own ground. What about the bombing last week? What was it the man used? She asks, stopping as if actually pondering on it. A car and propane, another student shouts out. Transportation and barbecue materials, Rogers clarifies. And where can you get propane? Walmart, the same student shouts out. And anywhere else that sells barbecue supplies. And how about a Corolla? And stabbings? How much have those increased? The cocky male student opens his mouth to argue, but Rogers cuts him off. If people want to kill, they will kill. And who's to say that people don't have the right to protect themselves? You? Yes, guns are designed to destroy but a gun in the hands of a trained, responsible citizen is safer than a mentally unstable individual or a criminal looking only to harm. How about instead of making another law restricting what we own, indirectly harming the innocent, we reform the way we teach the rising generation? Oblivious to the ongoing heated debate, Isla hangs her head down in a mini pity party. It's just too soon for him. She should know this. That doesn't help stop the emotions that started coming back up the second she saw him, though. It was bittersweet when she heard that Kim died especially the violent manner in which she did. But at the same time, Isla couldn't help but wonder if it was an act of God that her roommate was killed. It's selfish and borderline evil to think about it like that. But being the staunch Christian that she is, if there's one thing that she knows, it's that God's work is a mystery. I appreciate the invite, though, he says, seeing the disappointment, not for the first time, in his friend's eyes. With a smile, Isla sits up with the determination to ignore the stinging twinge in her heart. How's he doing? Carter asks, her last student having just bumped into him on her way out. Nice to see you too, Carter, Rogers sarcastically proclaims. They've been friends for years, and still the guy is business first. I'm sorry, Lisa. I'm stressed to say the least. I know, 
but it wouldn't be a proper hello if I didn't bust your balls, she retorts with a smirk, only to look back at her computer. And he's doing fine. Very intelligent. He's a good find. And Isla? Carter asks, this particular question a little more difficult to utter. He knew his niece was taking Lisa's class, making him hesitant to enroll his most recent operative in the same course due to the history she shares with Micah. But with every one of Lisa's classes full, this was the only option if they wanted to maintain Lisa's federal anonymity with the university. Nothing would put the division under greater threat than having sophists hating Rogers more than they already do. <laughs> She's a flirt, Lisa chuckles. She debated on whether to give Carter this bit of information, but on account of him inevitably finding out, she figured it'd be entertaining to watch him squirm. I don't know what to do about that girl, Carter responds in a surprisingly calm manner. He's not entirely shocked by this. Isla has always had an inconvenient choice in boys, and Micah, he has been on this girl's radar for quite some time. Yes, you do. You always have, Rogers states. Since the early days in the CIA, Lisa has helped Carter raise his niece, and at times, she's had to whip him into shape along the way. She's longed for a relationship with the man. However, each has their allotment in life, and Lisa has accepted her marriage to her country. You're probably right, Carter states. She usually is. If the country wasn't in such a disaster, Carter and Lisa would be married. There's no doubt in his mind. But as frustrating as it is, they may never be able to explore a life together. You up for lunch? He then asks. I have a class in ten minutes, but after that... His mysterious ways have always had a flattering appeal to Lisa, and not because of their clandestine nature, but simply because she is the only one that can see through his bullshit. With a smile, he turns to exit, but before Carter leaves, he's reminded of something that pivots him back to face Lisa. By the way, you haven't heard anything about that key, have you? He asks, the matter having made him abnormally anxious these past months. Annoyed by his constant fretting, she answers like she always does. If I hear anything, I will let you know, John. Until then, follow protocol. Recognizing that tone of hers, he reluctantly gives up the argument without another word. He's beginning to doubt that the Ordians even have the Keeper's key. If they did, their operations would have already been sabotaged by now. That said, he's been wrong before. I have a few calls to make. I'll see you in a bit. After an affectionate embrace, Carter is out the door and back to business, pulling out his phone. I have another assignment. I'll be at your place in 20. And if I'm not there, Micah asks on the other end, you better be with how fast that motorcycle is. And before Micah can argue back, Carter hangs up. Out of all the guys in the world, Isla had to pick this one. I have to go, Micah says. Although he may not be ready for a relationship, he's discovered that he's ready for a friend. Oh, okay, well, we'll see you around. Yeah, Friday? Micah quickly answers, and then inserts, in class. Upon seeing her expression, remembering the date offer she made earlier. Yes, in class, Isla giggles. He's more charming by that minute, and he doesn't even know it. If goodbyes could lack grace, Micah manages to accomplish this as he waves a stiff hand up and down and side to side before turning away and looking any more stupid than he already does. Within a matter of minutes, he is home. He must admit, even though this slick machine wasn't in his top five, it's growing on him. The ride is smooth, handles like nothing he's ever touched before, and turns on a dime. The torque, though, that's what captured his attention. The moment he first hit the throttle, the roar from the engine awakened the lion in Micah's heart as he sped down the empty street that first day. It's about time, Mr. Carter says in an irritated tone. Gazing out the window never has had much appeal. It usually starts out as an opportunity to ponder, 
but it always ends with Carter finding new regrets. Traffic, Michael lies, unsurprised to find Carter in his apartment. With a bike like his, not in a million years. So, what's the assignment? We want you to take out a gang, Carter casually says, his brooding still directed out the window. Micah, on the other hand, doesn't acknowledge a word he says. Moving to put his phone in Kim's mug, Micah's heart stops at its absence. Instead, a fancy knife that Mike has never seen before rests in its place. Where's the cup? He demands, picking up the blade and stabbing it where the mug should be. What cup? Carter asks, turning around. That's when Micah sees it, the lopsided heart, the toddler's smiley face, Kim's mug in Carter's hand. For future reference, Micah spits as he storms towards Carter. Don't ever use this cup. Jerking the mug from Carter, Micah spills coffee over both their hands. Noted, Carter nods, gently snatching his coffee back from Micah and taking a sip nonchalantly. As I was saying, the gang. You want them dead? Micah asks, his agitation burrowing into Carter's soul. I did not say that. I said that we want you to take them out. Okay, Micah says with an annoyed shrug. What's the difference, he thinks. Recently, Carter begins, taking another sip. This gang has been found funding the children of the Ordian Reich. Tonight, they'll be making a major transaction, one that will cripple us as an effective enemy of the Reich if it goes through. When and where? 2 a.m. behind the news station. Another sip. Stop the transaction from taking place. It is not hyperbolic in the least bit to say that this deal could be one of the last things that Division C's transpire in this war. What are the rules of engagement? Kill only in self-defense. That is the only time you should ever take a life while working with us. That's debatable, Micah mumbles. Carter's impressed with the progress Micah's made, but he has a lot to learn. Let the police arrest the gang. Just make sure the transaction tonight does not happen, he adds, taking one final sip and carefully giving Micah back the mug. And don't get caught. I never do. One more thing, Carter says, pointing over to a metal trunk off in the corner of the room. We gave you some tools to work with. Some are more familiar than others. Silently, Carter then leaves Micah alone with his thoughts and preparations. Placing Kim's cup in the sink, his eyes fixate on the chest the entire time. Drying his hands, Micah moves over, snapping the clasp up and lifting the heavy lid, revealing an array of weapons and pieces of body armor. Immediately, he moves to pick up one of his favorites, the whip. Next, his attention shifts to the blades, and like the ones he used in training, they are simple, black-edged weapons. His bread and butter, two knives and a single hatchet. Less interesting items, like the armor and the clubs, don't get as much attention from the agent, but one item pierces Micah's heart more than any other edged weapon could. Running his fingers along the outline, Micah picks up the mask, an exact replica of the one he was wearing that night, with one slight modification, two devil horns. At first he hates it, but then he loves the guise as the fear-evoking symbol Carter intended. If there is no god that their enemies fear, then there sure as hell is a devil. Just adjacent to the masquerade mask lays the most familiar weapon of all, his redwood cane. Not a replica, but the exact one he used to kill Kim's attackers, and together, the poetic coupling of the demon's mask and his cane kindles his rage. At times, he's doubtful that any of this will make the impact that Carter and the Division aim for, but that's not why he's agreed to Carter's terms. These items are tools of retribution. They are weapons of revenge, redemption, and freedom from his anguish.
Getting in position, Micah cuts the engine to his bike, coasting to a parking spot a block and a half away. Feels so stupid, Micah mumbles. In theory, it's cool to have everything you need strapped to your body, and maybe some tweaking and adjustments, it'll feel more natural. But his weapons dangle loosely off his body in an overwhelming number of buckles, straps, and holsters, while his pockets bulge at the seams with everything else. This, however, is not what makes him feel like a soup sandwich. The euphoria from seeing the horned mask vanished the second he placed it on his unkempt, frizzied face. Nothing like the vigilante he pictured. He looks more like a crazy hobo high on crack. Having approached from the north, downwind from the rear entrance of the warehouse, he waits and watches the area from the shadows. It isn't long before a small army of black Cadillac SUVs approaches, slowing to a halt before more than a dozen brawny and hardened men exit the vehicles. Seventeen? Micah counts. Seventeen? He knows what he's doing, but Mike has never handled this many at one time. Carter knows this, so what the hell is he thinking? But before Mike can radio in his complaint, three more vehicles approach, dumping out another massive group. 28? Are you shitting me? Putting his hand to his ear, Michael radios Carter. You done? Carter asks. No, I'm not done, Micah states, making sure to keep his voice down. 28 targets? You never... Did they make the transaction? No, but I don't see how I'm going to stop all 28 of them. Before Micah can complain any further, he notices discourse among the two groups before a handful of men move to one of the vehicles. In the still night air, Micah overhears whimpering and muffled yells as five people are pulled outside, all of them with a canvas bag over their head. Stand by, Micah says. After another quick study, Micah makes a horrifying observation. Two of the five are full-grown adults, which is disturbing on its own, but not as gut-wrenching as seeing the other three kids? Sales have gone up threefold for traffickers since Congress elected President Westwood. Both they and he opened our border, making cartel ordian activity like this easier than ever. It's also made for a rather convenient means to eliminate political rivals. What you're seeing is Governor White's chief of staff and his family. What's the local response time? Micah asks. Five minutes, Carter says without skipping a beat. Call them at four, Micah states before cutting the transmission. Standing up from the shadows, Micah walks forward, calculating and planning each step and breath he takes. His mind slows down his surroundings and the movements of the targets ahead as he taps into his training. Every sight, sound, and smell is interpreted and studied as he accepts the weight of his leather armor and its Kevlar lining pressing against his body. Clutching his weapons in hand, this is not a matter of ability any longer. It's a matter of principle. Damn politics. This fight is about defending human life and childhood innocence. Hey! A thug snarls, noticing Micah's advance, completely unintimidated. Yo! Stop right there! He yells, pulling out a Glock from his pants. 45 caliber. Micah is very familiar with it, Glock being the choice amongst most of his instructors. Micah stops, and so does the activity of every criminal present as they watch, waiting for what happens to the vagrant that's walked in on their affairs. Sliding his right hand on top of the whip, Micah unclips it. What are you doing here? Micah demands. He knows how stupid it may sound, but he must stall. There's some details he still wants to finalize. Doesn't matter, one of the apparent leaders states, naive as to what is about to transpire. You best leave, though. Micah doesn't move as the thug pointing his glock takes three steps forward, chambering around. You bust listen, old man. Three steps are all Micah needs. In a flash, the whip is out, slicing the back of the thug's hand wide open. Yelping, he drops the firearm while gunshots rain in from the 27 others, riddling the back of the unarmed criminal and the SUV that Micah is behind before a single trigger is pulled. 
Who's that? He with you? One of them shouts. Ain't no way. He's with you. This is exactly what Micah was aiming for. Nothing is weaker than a confused, disorganized enemy. Protect the product! One of the leaders shouts as seven criminals huddle around the small family. Shut up! He yells, smacking one of the kids who started to cry. Hey! Micah shouts, standing up from behind his hiding spot and throwing a knife which lands with a thud, finding its mark in the meat of the thug's thigh. A retaliating barrage is shot in Micah's direction, but again, he's unseen and unharmed. Let's get out of here! A cowering suggestion echoes amongst the silence. It's one douche, one of them begins, but before he can finish the petty logic, he's bashed in the back of the head by Micah's cane. Mike is able to easily take out two others with the same speed and precision before they are left again to shoot at his shadow. An eerie silence falls over the moans and groans from the injured, and with the wind strewing leaves across the asphalt, nobody moves for seconds at a time. Suddenly, a startling hiss cracks the dull air. Groaning under the lack of support from its flat tire, one of the criminal SUVs drops to the ground. What the hell? Shut up, the leader whispers, listening to nothing except whimpers and scattering foliage. Without warning, the worker vans parked at the warehouse begin to beep as their alarms go off. First one, then two, until all of them blare in the early morning hours, disorienting every gang member. Out of nowhere, the middle criminal is whipped in the throat, dropping him to his knees. And still, not a single shot is fired, as Micah breaks the various limbs and tracheas of thugs trying to stop him from running off again. In a matter of seconds, only a select few stand between him and the kidnapped family. Cautiously, the gang approaches Micah, with the horrifying realization that this is no hobo. Unexpectedly, Micah throws his cane, cracking one in the skull on the far left, as the remaining fearfully advance. Pulling his two mini clubs from off his back, Micah goes to work on their hands, knees, jaws, and any part of their body that gets in the way or tries to cause him harm. Micah is only hit once by a bat with a wild swing to his ribs, but slamming the mini club into the thug's collarbone and then the base of the skull, Micah neutralizes the last threat. With the car alarm still sounding in the background, Micah knows he must hurry as the distant sirens of police can be heard. Scrounging for his weapons, Micah hastily approaches the family. Doing their best to move in front of and protect their cowering children, the parents face their unknown approaching savior. It's okay, Micah says, slowly lifting the canvas bags from each of their heads. Is anyone hurt? Timidly, all shake their heads. You'll be fine, he then says, kneeling and looking to the eyes of the little girl. With her eyes red and cheeks flush, Micah wipes away one of her tears. As he opens his mouth to say one final thing, he is stopped by a flash of white light from behind. Whipping around, Micah sees a photographer sprinting in the opposite direction. Snatching up his cane and other weapons, with ease, Micah catches up, tackling her to the ground just outside the warehouse's perimeter. Get off of me! She fights, swinging her fists and flailing her legs, managing to hit Micah more than the combined 28 criminals did. Shut up! He growls, picking her up from off the ground. I'm not going to hurt you, stupid. I just need... Micah begins, but freezes upon seeing her face. Isla? 